Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Power in Weakness. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Triumphal Victory Parade. I have noticed that in the NFL, they have rules against taunting. You know, the flag gets thrown when someone scores a touchdown and then acts in a way that that rubs it in the opponent's face. You know, immediately that's a penalty. The reason why that's a penalty is because it's considered unseemly or against the spirit of the game to express joy and victory in that way. The game is supposed to be played with a high level of competition, but also with a sense of respect for the opponent. It's unbecoming of the sport to act in that fashion. Well, in a similar vein, there is Christian taunting. It's called Christian triumphalism. What is that? Well, isn't it true that in Christ we triumph? We've read the last chapter in the Bible and we win. Isn't it true that God has redeemed his children, that in the end, our enemies will be vanquished and God's people will be rewarded? Yeah, that is, that is true. But Christian triumphalism is the idea that when you become a Christian, your social status is elevated over others now. You can now have your best life. You can live like a king's kid, claiming blessings in Jesus' name and watching your enemies melt before you. You know, triumphalism in some circles is is used for supposed evangelism. Come to Jesus and he will heal your sicknesses. He's going to cure your financial woes and he's going to provide you with rich satisfaction right now. No evil will come near you. You're going to walk in divine health and divine wealth. That's your lot as compared to the rest who might walk in misery. That was their choice. And then you wonder why so many people are losing what little faith they have. People will often complain, But how could God treat me this way? I mean, didn't he promise to bless me? See, that's called Christian triumphalism. I'm going to triumph now in this life. God has promised it. Well, I'm going to speak against that viewpoint, but not I. Rather, we're going to carefully study Paul's writing describing his own experience, which is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. So let's start by reading verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, if you've been following this series in 2 Corinthians, you have heard me say it several times. Paul's enemies have been criticizing him because they say he's fickle. He makes plans and then he changes them at a whim. And so, as we've seen, Paul has been defending his constantly changing plans, but as he's done so, he's been sharing the reason for that. So, let's give a little history lesson. Paul first arrived in Troas. That was recorded in Acts 16. He was then on his second missionary journey, and there he experienced his very first change of plans. You know, God sent him a vision of a man of Macedonia, that's in northern Greece, pleading to him to come and help us. And so, Paul changed his plans. God had intervened, and he traveled from Troas in northern Turkey, or what was then called Asia, and then he traveled over to the Greek coast. He was in Macedonia. There he founded churches in Philippi and then in Thessalonica. And there, for the first time, the gospel had come to Europe. Now, later, during 
Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus, which, of course, is in Asia, uh, the gospel has spread from Ephesus up north to Troas. Remember, it was because of a vision that Paul hadn't spent time planting a church there in the first place, but now he's finally got the chance to preach in Troas. He'd wanted to do so in the past, but now the opportunity came up. And says Paul, I was amazed at the results. He says, a door was opened for me by the Lord. Now, that's an image that Paul often used to describe a very receptive audience and the Lord's blessing on his preaching ministry. I mean, people were coming to Christ. The impact of the gospel was growing in that city. And you might have then thought that Paul should have stayed longer. Instead, he says, my spirit was not at rest. He means that he was in a continual state of anxiety the entire time. His spirit, that's the immaterial part of him, that part where he's conscious of wrestling with God. All the while, he's seeing people coming to Christ, and yet in his spirit, he's filled with disquiet and concern and restlessness. And he says the reason was that he had anticipated that Titus would be there or show up while he was in Troas. So clearly, Paul was concerned about the mission that he had given Titus. So Titus had gone to Corinth and had delivered Paul's harsh letter, that is, his stiff rebuke to the sins of the Corinthian church. And then day after day, Paul was waiting to see what his letter would bring. And as time went on, Titus never appeared. People were coming to Christ in Troas, but but how was the church in Corinth doing? And all the while, Paul's restless spirit is becoming more concerned. Now, just to remind ourselves, here's what happened. The Corinthian church had reacted very badly to the letter of 1 Corinthians. And then Paul visited them to clear up the difficulties, but that visit was a disaster. And Paul had left Corinth then, deeply hurt by how he had been treated. Next, he sent a painful letter to Corinth through Titus, and now Paul was waiting. What's going on? Here's what Paul didn't know. Titus read the painful letter to the church, and among other things, the majority of the church in Corinth finally faced their sin, and they repented. They even excommunicated the leader who had led the rebellion against godly leadership. But Paul didn't know that, and Titus hadn't showed up. What was happening to him? What was happening to the Corinthian church? Had Satan won a great victory? I mean, Paul just didn't know. You know, I know reading of this matter all these years later, and we might miss how unbearable this experience was for Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, he speaks about his daily concern for all the churches. I mean, his concern that that false teachers might be winning the day in Corinth. I mean, that left him barely able to breathe. It, It filled his prayer life as he labored before God, pleading that the Holy Spirit would have mercy on the Corinthian Christians. It dominated his thinking. His spirit was restless. He was waiting. And so Paul made a judgment call. He would travel to Macedonia, probably to the church in Philippi, the church that was his very best partner in the gospel. That wouldn't have been a very long trip. A a one-day journey should have gotten him there. You know, the Philippian church was the very best partner church that Paul had. I mean, they would know something about what was happening in Corinth. And Paul speaks about this matter again later in 2 Corinthians. So if you flip forward to 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 to 6, we read, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. 
Yeah, in the midst of all those pressures, by God's grace, Titus finally shows up in Philippi, and then he explains what had happened when Paul's painful letter had been read. There had been success in Corinth, much more than he had imagined. It was, it was like a revival. And then, through the lens of that experience, what he went through, first at Troas and then at Philippi, reflecting on how deeply anxious he had been, now inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes a bit of theology. I say that because, you know, there are the hyper-spiritual among us who would probably say, you know, well now, why didn't Paul just pray about all of this and, and just trust God? I mean, God could have showed him in a vision and let him know that he was really in control. I mean, wasn't Paul just being carnal by worrying so much? You know, to those of you who are parents, try to understand. Your child was supposed to be home at 11. It's now four or five in the morning. No phone call, no word, nothing. Why don't you just pray and thank God and go back to sleep? Why? Because your overwhelming love for your children and the reality that they might make bad choices makes that kind of response of simply going back to, to sleep, it's impossible. If it's early in the morning, you get into your car and you, you find out what happened to your son or daughter. You think that's carnal to feel such things? I see, I don't think so. And please see that Paul feels that passionately about these churches. He's not just doing the job of a pastor. He is passionate in his struggle for their souls, and he knows how great a spiritual warfare he's fighting. And so having described his own experience, let's let Paul now describe what that experience meant. We'll start by reading 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Ah, now you see why I began with the theme of triumphalism. Christ, says Paul, always, both now and in the future, leads us in a triumphal procession. We have victory. And if you aren't careful here, you might think Paul is saying, look, I know we went through a trying experience, but we came through it. Christ caused us to triumph. But actually, Paul has something very different to say. And what he says tells us everything about what it is to live as a faithful Christian in a world of spiritual warfare and great concern over the faith of others. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. We've received so many notes and emails of deep appreciation for Laugh Again. Well, we're expanding our programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be aired on YouTube to present Laugh Again Take 5. These are five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. For more information or to support the ministry of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. Studying 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17 carefully, well, I've got to warn you now, would you brace yourself? This is going to come out differently than you had imagined. And just so we prepare ourselves, please remember 
that before Paul ends this letter, he's going to talk about his own suffering and that the longer he has served Christ, well, his suffering simply got worse. It will, for Paul, end with his head on a Roman chopping block. That's how his ministry came to an end. And so if you have even the slightest interest in in understanding this experience of suffering, Paul says, I experience my suffering in the light of a triumphal procession. It's a great triumph. Well, let's find out how. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So please notice that after explaining the burden that Paul must have felt, over the weight of the responsibility that God has given him over the churches. He suddenly turns from the theme of heaviness to this explosion of praise. Thanks be to God, he says. That might seem surprising. I mean, where did that sudden outburst of worship come from? And then Paul explains. Christ, he says, always leads us, that is, me and Timothy, Titus, Silvanus, and others in a triumphal procession. You know, almost all Bible teachers are agreed on this point. Paul is borrowing on a very powerful image that his readers must have immediately recognized. So in Paul's day, whenever a Roman army won a major victory on the battlefield, Rome, the city itself, would hold what we might call today a ticker tape parade right down the center of the city. And at the lead of the parade was the conquering general from Rome. It means most often he was seated on a horse and then would follow two horse carriages filled with all the gold and other treasures that he had taken from the captives. Other commanding officers would follow along with all the victorious army. And then last of all would follow the captives of war, the the conquered men. They'd be shuffling down the street in chains. Most of them would be led to the place of execution. Well, the victory parade would move to the place where the priests would offer an offering They'd be burning spices, and the air all over the city would be filled with the aroma from that offering. And to the conquering army, that was the aroma of life. But to the men condemned to die, that same aroma was the aroma of death. It's the same aroma, but the aroma meant something very different depending on which side of the fight you had been on. And so playing on that image, Paul says, we... That is, we who proclaim Christ are the aroma. We're we're the smell of Christ's victory. And to some who repent and are saved, that's the aroma of life. It means that death has been defeated. This means that we've been offered eternal life in Christ. But to others who hear the very same message, it's the aroma of death. Well, as you can see, this makes a very, very powerful image. The preaching of Paul, whether it was at Troas, even under under huge stress, or anywhere else, always led to a response. Some people worshiped God, and and they were glad. And others, like Demetrius the silversmith, the man who sold idols for a living and, and saw that his business was now dwindling, that the Christian faith was growing, well, that man reacted very badly to the same message. It was the aroma of death to him. It was the same message, but it was death. 
Same message, different reactions, depending on which side of the victory you're on. That's, that's the image. But doesn't that sound like Christian triumphalism? We triumph in Jesus. We're among Christ's conquering army, and now all the enemies of the gospel, well, they're already defeated. We win, you lose. But then we've not yet fully understood the image that Paul's using. You know, when Paul says Christ leads us in triumphal procession, well, are we to understand that Jesus is the great general and that Paul and others who have preached the gospel are marching behind him in triumph? It's that kind of a procession. And might I say, that does seem like a very plausible way of understanding the image. But here a great many Greek scholars have pointed out that the verb, that one word in the Greek that's translated as leads us in triumph, it's one verb, and that verb is almost always used as the procession where the victors were leading the vanquished in triumph. That is, the image doesn't depict Paul as one of Jesus' commanding officers, but rather as Paul as one of Jesus' captured prisoners being led in chains to the place of death. Well, wait a minute. That seems to change everything. Suddenly, we've moved from the image of triumphalism to an image of having been conquered and led away to death by Jesus. Well, does that make sense at all? Well, as a matter of fact, yes, it does. And this is how Paul spoke about himself. He would often introduce himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. And furthermore, in the letter that we're reading, that is in 2 Corinthians, over and over again, Paul explains how he had suffered. In chapter 1, we saw that he had now come to a point where he despaired of life itself. It's hardly the image of a victorious commanding officer. And then in the verses leading up to this image, he's been describing his burden for the church. It was so great that his spirit found no rest. And then in chapter 4, he's going to say that he's always carrying in his own body the death of Jesus. You know, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who, who served Christ courageously during the reign of Hitler and who was eventually hung by a piano wire in the Nazi Flossenburg prison. Before he died, he wrote of his own activities. He said, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids him to come and die. Well, indeed, following Jesus did cost Bonhoeffer his life, and the Apostle Paul, well, it cost him his life as well. He'd been captured by Christ and was given the call to be one in Christ, both in his death and then in his resurrection. And that, I think, is the heart of this message. It goes like this. Just like a Roman general in a victory parade, Christ is the victorious general, having conquered all by the power of the cross. And Paul, well, he's one who has been captured by Christ. Christ defeated Paul on the road to Damascus. And this, this defeat of Paul and the victory of Jesus is what has made Paul a slave and a minister of Christ Jesus. He is both, you see, the fragrant aroma of Jesus and at the same time, the slave of Jesus led to the place of suffering. Now, that doesn't sound like triumphalism at all, does it? And think of it in terms of a series of stark contrasts. On the one hand, back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul speaks of despairing of life itself. On the other hand, in verse 10, Paul speaks of the power of God who delivered him from such deadly peril. See, here's the second contrast. At first, Paul expressed the weight of his responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the church in Corinth, a weight that nearly crushed him. 
And then on the other hand, notice the triumphal procession of Jesus. The final victory is never in doubt. Here's the third contrast, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10. There Paul says that he always carries the death of Jesus in his body, and yet at the same time he speaks of the life of Jesus being revealed in his mortal body. See, that contrast between led like a captive to death and yet experiencing the matchless power of Jesus, that's exactly what Paul had been experiencing. And that, says Paul, is why you should understand, as he says in verse 17, that I'm not a peddler of the gospel. See, a peddler, well, there's nothing wrong with being a peddler. A peddler is simply a salesperson selling a product for profit. But that is one image that Paul will never allow for a faithful preacher. Paul's not selling the gospel to make a living. It's not his job. It's not his lucrative career. He's not a word-faith preacher who flies his own private jet. Instead, as 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9 says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men triumphing in Christ. Yes. In the end, all who share in Christ's sufferings also share in his glory. Yes, again, we triumph in Christ. But triumphalism, well, that's the silly belief that we can live like royalty in this world. Absolutely not. It's sheer folly. It's false religion. So then, my dear friend, you want to reign with Christ, then forsake your life, pick up your cross, bet on the truthfulness of Christ's promises, give him your life, and you will triumph in the life to come. John, here's a question. It may have come across some people's minds, but the whole idea of if Christ is calling us to come and die, is that a good game? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if he promises us nothing after death. It's a very bad idea. I mean, I think we can say, Ben, you know, if the promises of Christ are not true, then it would be madness to follow him. I think we can say that. I mean, I think Paul talks about that in in 1 Corinthians. You know, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. On the other hand, if Christ has been raised from the dead and all the promises of Christ are true, which is what we're counting on, which is what we're sure of, then it would be madness not to throw our lives away for such a great prize. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in 2 Corinthians, Power in Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Christians around the world. Shauna wrote, your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, May God continue to grow his army and kingdom through your work. You know, we're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. This month, would you please consider supporting the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada across the country? Your gifts make this ministry possible. To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, 
call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.